So good to be with you this morning. Um, it's been a it's been a minute. I feel like I if you weren't at our outdoor service, uh, my name is Matt. By the way, I'm the lead pastor here. I haven't preached. It feels like very much this summer. And so um, just as a way, I know different churches do different things. And so um, I was talking to a friend yesterday who's a pastor, and uh, he was like, it's just so cool, you know, because for us, it's not like, hey, I've taken six weeks of vacation this summer, and so let's have people fill in when I'm on vacation. I think the reason we have different people speak, so last week, Britain did just a tremendous job uh, preaching. And so if you didn't get a chance to hear that, check out our podcast. Uh, but Wendy and Tom and Alex have just done great jobs. And the reason we do it isn't so I get a break, though that's always nice, right? Um, but it's because we feel like God's gifted other people in our church community to share God's word, and it's through a different lens, right? Each one of us, it's not that it's different truth, but based on our life experiences, our personality, our giftings, we share different aspects of scripture and the ways that we think about it. And so, you know, as you hear other people preach, there might be like, hey, actually, I really love when Tom preaches. Matt, you're fine, but I really love when Tom preaches, right? Or like, I really love when, you know, we, some of us, we just connect with different ways. And so just know that's a value of our church. Um, in our Meet Vineyard class, we talk about everyone gets to play. That's a, a long time vineyard value. By the way, if you're new here or new-ish, the vineyard, it's, we didn't just pick that name. We weren't like, hey, we love wine and grapes. Let's call it the vineyard. Um, it's part of like 800 other churches in the U.S. called the vineyard. Uh, and there's thousands, a couple thousand outside of the U.S. as well, too. So it wasn't a gimmicky name. It's just, you know, came up 40 years ago. I don't know if I would have chosen it, but it's great now. Um, and so, um, so that's the vineyard. But everyone gets to play as a value. It means that everyone gets to be a part of what God is doing. Uh, it's not just one person on stage or a few people that are especially chosen, uh, and then the rest of us kind of gets to do little odds and ends here and there. Um, but we all get to play and make an impact in what God is doing. And so that's why we do that. This is a little explainer of why we have different people preach. It's not just for a vacation, uh, but it's because we feel like it's actually really important to who we are as a church community. So um, awesome. So we are continuing our series, Parables of the Kingdom. And so this past week, um, I was actually talking to Mike and Wendy Gerhardt. If you haven't met Mike and Wendy, they led worship here last week. Um, but I was talking to them this week at a gathering, and I was telling them about our dog, Farley. And our dog, Farley, uh, he's a black lab. Um, he's turning 13. If you've been to our house, you have met Farley in, in all kinds of ways. Um, he is what you would call food-motivated, which is a common lab uh, trait. And so the great thing about dogs that are food-motivated is you can get them to do essentially anything with food, which is amazing, right? You're like, hey, sit, here's food, okay. Here, you know, do a backflip, talk, you know, write a paper for me, here's food. You know, but the challenge with a food-motivated dog is if what you're trying to get the dog to do is to not eat your food from your four-year-old and your two-year-old's hands, or don't eat the food off the counter, it's hard to motivate them with small bits of food when they see a banquet set out before them. So we were having some uh, training done because we really essentially just wanted to conquer this, like, how do we get our dog to stop eating all the food? Um, that we just lay out, like we can't leave him alone in the room, he will eat the food. And so, um, you know, we had a trainer from the American Kennel Association Society, I don't know what the last part of that is, uh, and we were like, hey, this is really our goal, and here's what she said to us. She goes, oh, we'll just keep the food where they can't get it. And I'm like, yes, thank you. That's it's great insight. Um, however, we can't always do that. Like, let's say you're having a party, you're having people you have small children who are three and a half feet tall. You know, you can't keep it out of, and they're like, oh, I don't know. 
And I was like, this is at the end of this like training series we were doing. We should have probably led with that and just like opted out of the course. Um, but the reality is, essentially, she was saying is that like there's no way to change this dog's like, be- like character. There's no way to change the inner workings of this dog. Like he will be motivated by food no matter what. And so all we can really do is hope to like shape the behavior by offering the motivation that drives them the most. Right? We can just we can curb behavior. We can't change the dog. Right? Here's what's crazy, is that historically, that's sort of how we've tried to shape people as well, too. And when you think about behavior modification or, or trying to get people to become moral or ethical, what we've kind of done most of the time, even in churches, is that what we've done is we've like, here's the outcome we want to get. We want people to be good people, religious people, or ethical people, moral people, whatever language uh, you want. And so what we've tried to do is go, all right, what drives people? And let's just tap into that. Right? So you can get people to give to the poor for really bad reasons. Like, I want to feel better than other people. I want to feel like I'm, I'm a good person. I want to, I just, uh, you know, I, it actually, it's a tax write-off, so I don't really care about people, but I can, like, save some money on my taxes. We can motivate people to do a lot of really good things for maybe not always the most generous reasons. Right? Because sometimes the belief, even in churches, is, you know, we can just drive people by fear even, right? So if you're a religious person, it's like, give to the poor because it'll make God happy, i.e. God will be mad at you if you don't. Or like, you're going to go to hell if you don't give to the poor. Or don't you want to make God happy? Or whatever it is, like, don't you want to be a good person? Good people don't lie. Good people don't steal. Don't you want to be good? And that's sort of what we've done, right? But the problem is it doesn't actually change us. It doesn't actually change us in side. We can play on people's motivations, but it doesn't actually change our hearts. But here's the thing that we actually believe in Christianity is that there's actually a way to see people's hearts change. There's actually an experience that can so fundamentally change our heart that we can actually become different people with different motivations and different desires. This is the experience of being absolutely, unconditionally loved. Loved for who we are, exactly how we are in the moment, that we are fully loved. This can actually change us at a heart level to understand God's love for us. Because when we get a new motivation, we get new desires because we no longer have to be driven by fear or by guilt or by shame. We're no longer driven by trying to be accepted or approved or affirmed. We no longer have to be driven by those motivations. We don't have to have someone tap into our self-interest. We don't have to have someone tap into our self-righteousness or self-centeredness. But we actually get a new heart where we begin to love different things. And we've been in this series called The Parables of the Kingdom. And what, we're talking about the kingdom of God. And if you're a Bible person, you've heard that language before. But a short version of that is the kingdom of God is where God rules and reigns, where we say, God, have your way. We want life to be the way you would want it to be. And in the kingdom of God, there are values and there's things that are deeply held that when we step into the kingdom, we allow God to have his way in our life. He begins to shape those things by his love, not by coercion, not by fear, not by manipulation, not by tapping into our own self-interest, but he actually wants to change us. And today, we're going to be looking at a parable of the kingdom that's all about forgiveness, 
It's all about forgiveness. But what we're going to see Jesus do when he talks about forgiveness, he's not going to just say, don't you want to be a good person? You should forgive. Don't you want to be a religious person? Don't you want to be, don't you want to make God happy? It's the right thing to do to forgive, so you should forgive. But what Jesus actually wants to do is tap into deeper, into deeper places in our heart to give us a kingdom of God perspective and a kingdom of God motivation on forgiveness. Because if Christianity is about anything, it's about forgiveness. If there's, it's about anything, it's about forgiveness. So let me pray and then we'll read our passage together. Well, Lord, we love places in the Bible that talk about your desire to be with us. We're reminded that the story of Jesus, Jesus coming, being very God, the Son of God coming to earth as a human, reminds us that, God, there's nothing that, want, that will keep you from coming near to us. And so this morning, in these moments, we just say, come, God, your spirit, would you be near to us? Would we feel your presence? We know that you're already here, but would you make yourself known? For those of us who struggle to believe, would you give us faith? For those of us who need healing, would you begin that process? For those of us who need hope, would you do it, Lord, and give us hope? For those of us who feel alone, would you remind us you're with us? Would you say, come, Holy Spirit of God, have your way. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we're going to look at Matthew 18, 21 through 35. If you have your Bible or even a phone app, it's always good to follow along that way. Uh, but if you want to as well, you can also follow along on the screen. Let me read it to us. Then Peter, that's an apostle, came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had, been, all had he had to be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. Owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. So let's take a look at those first couple verses. It says, Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. 
So here's Peter. If you're a Bible person, even if not, Peter is the guy who always has something to say, always has something he wants to share. Usually it's a little off. He's very zealous, though, and so he's very enthusiastic, whatever he's doing or saying. And so he's talking to Jesus, and in the at day, rabbis, so these, you know, Jesus and Peter are Jewish. So Jewish rabbis would say, you could forgive three times. Three times was like, you forgive someone three times, that was kind of like the limit, that was it. So Peter thinks he's doing a big, a big deal here. He's like, how about seven times? How about I forgive someone seven times? And of course, he asked Jesus the question before Jesus can answer, like Peter would and some of us. We don't let Jesus answer. We just go, how about seven times, right? But Jesus responds, no, 77 times. And maybe you've read other translations, 70 times seven But essentially what Jesus is trying to say, he's not saying on time 78, then you don't have to forgive people anymore. What he's saying is, no, 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 you're not even close. What Jesus is saying is, here's the measure of forgiveness. Here's the measure of forgiveness. If you're counting, you've missed the point. If you're keeping score, you've missed the point of forgiveness. If you're keeping track, if you're like, okay, two more times, done, cutting them off. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying it's such a big number, it's unlimited. If you're counting, you're missing the point. But it's not the only time in this story that Jesus compares numbers like this. In the parable, he says 10,000 bags of gold, um, a more accurate translation, 10,000 talents. Um, what's funny is that word talent we use, you know, it's like that word talent was like an issue of currency. So now we talk about like, what's your talent, uh, which is taken from another story that Wendy, I think, is preaching on in a couple weeks. Um, but anyways, 10,000 talents. A talent was the largest denomination of currency in the Roman world. So whatever our largest currency is, I should have looked that up. I don't know if we have like $10,000 bills maybe or something like that, whatever the largest one is. So Jesus is essentially saying, this person that owed something, they owed the lar- largest currency and the largest number that they had a word for was 10,000. So here's the largest number they had a word for, that many of the largest currency of that day. So there's not an exact, you know, uh, figure, but it's in somewhere between the millions and a trillion. So what does be an average one billion? How about that? So essentially the number that Jesus is using is this servant owed infinite amounts of money that he could have never have paid back, right? This is a parable. It's not a real story. So he's like, he's using it to tell a story. And so now the number that was owed by the second service servant was essentially 100 days of work, 100 days of work. You know, so for us, um, you know, that would be, let's say, $20,000 or 15, you know, depending on, I think the average median income in Northeast Ohio is like $46,000. Let's say $20,000. So it was not nothing. But in comparison, there's this huge amount that was owed by the first servant and this small amount that's actually doable owed by the, uh, the other servant. So Jesus wants to start this conversation about forgiveness by having some number comparisons. Peter says, how about seven times? He's like, how about don't count? And then he says, hey, here's this king who forgave this infinitely large amount, and here's this servant who, after being forgiven, couldn't forgive something that was nowhere close to that amount. Jesus wants to start the conversation about forgiveness by saying there's not a limit to forgiveness. Now, let me clarify. Are boundaries we set. There can be limits that we want to put on people's behavior. The pastor, vineyard pastor in Columbus, Rich Nathan, uh, who is a pastor of our church in Columbus, he said this, we can limit a person's behavior, but we can never limit our forgiveness. In other words, we can put boundaries up, we can create ways that we stay safe, and that, that we don't have to allow someone to continue to harm us, but we can't put limits on our 
forgiveness. And we'll talk about some myths of what forgiveness is in a minute. But we can set up boundaries that keep us safe or keep others safe that we love. But forgiveness doesn't have boundaries. That doesn't mean it's easy. It's not always, um, and it's not always the person that we have to forgive over and over again. Sometimes the thing, the, the instance, the experience, the person that we're invited to forgive is maybe just a one-time thing, a trauma that happened. And C.S. Lewis says this. He says, to forgive for the moment is not that difficult, but to go on forgiving the same offense again and again every time it reemerges in your memory in other words, it was an event that happened in the choosing to forgive every time it pops back up. Every time we think about it again, we feel it again, that is the real tussle. The issue of forgiveness, it's a challenging one. It isn't easy. Sometimes the person we have to forgive is someone who did something one time, and sometimes it's a death by a thousand paper cuts. That thing that happens over and over and over again. But the journey of forgiveness is central It's central to what the kingdom of God is like. It's central to what God is all about. It's at the very center of God's heart is the issue of forgiveness. If Christianity is about anything, it's about forgiveness. So let's talk about what does forgiveness actually mean? What does it actually mean? When the story in verse 27, it says that the king cancels the debt entirely. He forgives it. Now, of course, the same servant doesn't cancel the debt of the other servant that owed him money. And then at the very end, it says, Jesus says, we must forgive from our hearts. So we talked about the measure of forgiveness, not having boundaries. But I think it'd be helpful to say, what does the Bible say forgiveness is? Well, when you look in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the the word that's translated forgiveness in those spaces is often connected to other words, which mean, here's one way they're, they're, they're connected to, to release or let go or to set free. And this is a big part of what we're doing when we forgive. We're letting go. We're letting go of the past. We're letting go of the offense. We're letting go of the hurt. We're letting go of the person who hurt us. We're letting go of the anger. We're letting go of the drive for revenge. We're letting go of those things. Forgiveness, it also means in the Bible, canceling a debt. And we see that here, right? And for most of us to cancel a debt, what it looks like for most of us is not walking around saying to someone or feeling towards someone or talking about someone behind their back, telling them, reminding them, you've hurt me, you've offended me, and I'm going to go hold on to that until somehow you pay me back. And when someone hurts us, we feel that, right? We feel like they owe us a debt. You know, and oftentimes the debt that we experience is an emotional debt. It feels like they've taken something from us. They've harmed us. They've hurt us. They've, they've spoken a lie into our life that speaks about our value, speaks about our worth, challenges how we view the world. And it feels like, you owe me. You need to give back to me the, either the innocence. You need to give back to me the safety I felt. You need to give me back the identity that I felt I had. You need to give this back to me, which, by the way, they can't actually do. Almost always the debt we feel like other people owe us, oftentimes they they can't do it. They couldn't pay us back anyways. So to forgive means to cancel the debt we hold against them. It's the letting go, maybe the constant guilt you place on them. Maybe the cold shoulders. Maybe in turn you've begun to manipulate them. Maybe the insults in front of them or behind their backs. Hurting them professionally. Maybe it's a coworker and you find ways to continue to kind of sabotage them. Tearing their reputation up in front of them, behind them, online, 
between emails, between coworkers, whatever it is. To cancel a debt means you aren't trying to exact from them what they owe you. Forgiveness erases the debt in the account. To let go, to release from debt. Here's another way the Bible talks about forgiveness is to carry away, to carry away. If you've been around church much or a Bible person, you've heard this verse in Psalm 103, verse 12. It says that God has removed our sin and our debt as far as the east is from the west. So you're like, oh, I don't know what that means. Think about it. Like if the east and west never meet, right? If you start going east, you're just always going east. Like on the, on the globe, you're just always going east. And west, you're always going west, and they never actually meet. And there was a ritual done in the Old Testament that symbolized this idea of God removing or taking away our debt, our sin, the things that we need forgiven by God for. And on the Day of Atonement, maybe Yom Kippur, maybe if you um, have an, uh, a smartphone and you have a calendar synced and it's like, here's all the national holidays, and you're like, oh, Yom Kippur, what is that? It's a Jewish holiday, the Day of the Atonement. And it's a day where Israel would be forgiven. Happened once a year. And, and one of the ways they symbolized uh, being forgiven was they would, um, the priest would place their hands on a goat. You know, that goat's called a scapegoat. So if you ever wonder where that phrase scapegoat came from, uh, it's from there, from the Bible. Um, and so they would place their hands, the, the priest would, as a symbol of all of Israel's sins being placed on this goat. And they would send the goat out into the wilderness. This picture of what God had done and sending away our sin, and sending it away from us. And all the people should be this symbol. Now, in the New Testament, in our day, when we come to God for forgiveness, not only the things we've done, so often we think about, is there anything I've done? Oh, the things I have done haven't been that bad. But when we're really kind of aware of what's in our hearts, right, our hearts and attitudes towards people, maybe towards God, things that we don't really express, but we're like, man, if someone would look at how I act, uh, and oftentimes, remember, the, the opposite of love isn't hatred, it's, it's apathy, right? Like, so the opposite of love isn't hating somebody, it's actually being apathetic and going, you're really of no consequence to me at all. It's like, you don't even exist, right? And sometimes, really, the challenge for us towards other people and maybe even towards God is just is apathy. Like, eh, it's here nor there, you know? Um, but when we come to God asking for forgiveness, the postures of our heart, self-centeredness, when we come to God for forgiveness, what we're doing is we're actually putting our sins on the head of Jesus. Not an unwilling goat, but a willing Savior that Jesus said, I, I came for you to, actually, that's why I came. That's why God's Son came, is so that we could have our sin placed on Him, willing, freely, out of love. This is not like a, a cosmic child abuse situation. This is Jesus coming willingly to take our sin and guilt, to take it away from us. And he dies on a cross to take away our sin, to set. We're forgiven. Our debt is paid. We're set free. This is what forgiveness means. And it's beautiful, right? It's beautiful that God would forgive us by his own sacrifice. It's beautiful in theory, right? It's beautiful in theory until we're asked to forgive. It's beautiful in theory, and, and you don't have to be a Christian. I would say in all our current culture, the idea of forgiveness is pretty, most people say, yes, we should forgive other people, right? For most of us, we would say that's the case. But it's beautiful in theory to actually have to forgive someone who's deeply harmed us, or maybe even worse, I've realized this as a parent, like the idea of harming me is nowhere near the idea if you harm my kiddos, if you harm my children. Like, so to actually forgive someone who's hurt you or hurt someone you love 
And it can feel excruciatingly painful. But this is a picture of forgiveness that we see in the Bible. And so it's hard, it's difficult, it's beautiful. So let's talk a little bit about what are the challenges of forgiveness, the challenges of forgiveness. Well, I think before we go much further, I think one of the challenges of forgiveness, and maybe in this room, uh, depending on where you're at in life and where you've been feeling, sometimes the biggest challenge to actually forgiving people is we don't see the need. Like you say, is there anybody you need to forgive? And you're like, not really. Anybody you're holding grudges against? I don't think so. Like, I'm pretty good. I mean, things have happened to me, but I, I forgot about it. I moved on, right? And we think we don't see the need. And yet there's this verse in the Bible, Hebrews 12, 15, and it talks about um, to watch out so that a root of bitterness doesn't grow in our hearts. Um, another word for bitterness could be anger or feeling like you've been mistreated. So this idea of be careful that a root of bitterness, anger, unforgiveness doesn't grow up in your heart. And the, the thing with roots, and the reason that I think um, the author of Hebrews, who we don't know who that is, uh, wrote that is because roots, you can't see a root, right? You can't see a root. And so when we talk about unforgiveness so often, we're like, I don't need to forgive anybody. I don't really know if I'm angry, because oftentimes what we do is we cut off the top, right? We mow down the weed, we cut down the tree, and the roots are still there. And so oftentimes we can't see it. We're not aware of it. This isn't trying to find something that's not there. Maybe if you really have gone through a real healing process and in your journey and you're like, I've actually spent time with God and I've actually released people, then yeah, absolutely, you know, and actually forgiven people. But for most of us, that bitterness, that anger, the unforgiveness, oftentimes it kind of lives beneath the surface and it only comes out when it's pushed upon or you dig a little bit, maybe with your counselor, your therapist, maybe you're in a, a committed relationship and, and, uh, and it comes out in those conversations, you wow, I'm, I didn't realize I was so angry. Um, or the men, some of the men are reading this book called The Deeply Formed Life uh, on Thursday, every other Thursday night. And uh, the author, Rich Philotus, um, tells a story about how he's a pastor and um, he was, he's been married to his wife for a while. And he's like, his wife would always be like, why are you so angry? And he's like, I'm not angry, I'm frustrated. And like, that would be his response for years. And so one time they got in an argument and like he had his phone and he slammed his phone down on the counter in frustration and it shattered. And he was like, it took breaking a $1,000 phone to realize, oh, I think I am angry. You know, but oftentimes what we do is we, we use other labels because we feel like saying we're angry or we have unforgiveness towards someone. That's not like okay to say. Like who's going to go around like, you know, if even your neighbor goes, you know what? My parents hurt me, but I'm never going to forgive them. You're like, oh, okay. All right. You know, like we don't usually say those kind of things or like, hey, I'm really angry at you. It's rare that we kind of use that language. And so we filter it. We say, I'm frustrated, right? Like, I'm just frustrated all the time. And I break phones and I throw things and I seethe, you know, and like I can't stand to see that person. But I'm not really actually angry. I don't actually hold anything against them. I mean, yeah, when I see their number come up on my phone, I like want to like never answer it. I'm already starting to feel anxiety. But, you know, I'm just, it's just you know, I've, I've moved on, right? I mean, I've been there. So like, this isn't just me. Like, we say those kind of things because we think it's not appropriate. We think it's weak to admit that we have unforgiveness still. You know, all these things. And I think one of the biggest hurdles to actually moving towards forgiveness towards people who have hurt us and harmed us is admitting that maybe we haven't forgiven them. That there's actually an issue, right? Because, um, you know, what? Admitting a problem is the first step in recovery, right? Admitting there's actually something we need to do. 
So here are some other challenges, and it's kind of a list of myths, and I can't spend a lot of time on each one of them, um, but here's some myths of forgiveness, um, because I think sometimes you're like, well, you got to define forgiveness. If you say it's like there's no limits to forgiveness, you better define this in a way that, uh, that I can follow that actually makes sense. You can throw that up, Noel. Go ahead. So forgiveness doesn't mean that you forget. First of all, like, we don't really have the ability to forget, I mean, generally, especially things that are really harmful. So to say, like, if I've forgiven somebody means that I have to forget what they've done, I won't remember it, that's just not true. Only God literally can forget. I don't know how he does it exactly, but it says he does, and so I take his word for it. Forgiveness does not mean it didn't matter. Actually, by forgiving someone, you're actually saying it did matter. Because the process of forgiveness that we're going to look at and talk through is saying, you know, think about the king who forgave in this parable. Like, it really mattered. That's a lot of money that he forgave them, uh, this guy of. It mattered. It wasn't that it didn't matter. It was actually that it did matter so much in the offer of sacrifice of what he was willing to do to forgive, just it cost that much more. When you forgive somebody, it's not saying it didn't matter or that it's no big deal or has no effect on you. You're actually saying, it did, and I want to move forward. I want to be free. Forgiveness is not deserved by the offender. It's a gift that only you can give. If someone's like, I, you need to forgive me, you're welcome to remind them that actually that it's not something that they're deserved. The king didn't have to forgive, right? The king didn't have to forgive. Now, for us, we're invited to because God has forgiven us of so much, and he calls us to that, but it's not something that's deserved by the offender. It's always a gift. It's always a gift. It's only something that you can choose to forgive, to offer your forgiveness. Only you can do that. And which is connected to forgiveness is not weakness. It's not being weak. It's not, forgiveness is not saying, oh, well, I'm just letting them run over me. I'm just letting them like, deal, like, realize it's no big deal. Actually, it's not because what you're choosing to do in forgiveness is actually not letting your life be controlled by the person who harmed you or abused you or hurt you. By forgiving, you're actually saying, I'm releasing you from filling up my thoughts all the time. I'm releasing this so that my emotions are not controlled by what you said about me or how you treated me. Like you're actually choosing a powerful thing to forgive. And you don't have to feel like forgiving. There's a lot of emotions. There's a lot of things that you feel in the process of forgiveness. But it's not always beginning with an issue of, I feel like forgiving this person today. I really actually feel pretty good, so I should forgive them now. Oftentimes, part of the process of forgiving is grieving. It's actually feeling those emotions again, and we'll talk more about that, that actually you experience, but it doesn't always start with an emotion. And then finally, and I'll spend a few minutes on this, is forgiveness and reconciliation are not the same thing. Forgiveness and reconciliation, restoration, reunion, whatever you want to call it, is not the same thing. Reconciliation means the person requires the person to admit they're wrong, that they're done and they repent. That is what is required for reconciliation. And if they're able to, to try to make that wrong right, if they're able to. Bishop Desmond Tutu, he won a Nobel Prize for the work he did in South Africa. He said this, you know, if you're not familiar with South Africa, there was a, the white apartheid, so just lots of injustice towards uh, people of black skin, um, Af- actual Africans as well too. And um, he says this, we can forgive the perpetrators of injustice and oppression We must always be ready to forgive, but can we come together in peace? Those who have wronged must be ready to make what amends they can. If I've stolen your pen, I can't really be contrite when I say, please forgive me, if at the same time I keep your pen. 
If I'm truly repentant, I will demonstrate this by returning your pen. Then real reconciliation, which is always costly, will happen. In other words, for there to be reconciliation, restoration in a relationship, it's not just that you choose to forgive someone to release them, but that they actually have to admit that there was a wrong. And if they're able to, to repay what has been taken. Now, oftentimes, they're not able to repay that, and so there's a rebuilding of trust. But Lewis Smeads, who's an author and professor, says this. He says, it takes one person to forgive. It takes two to be reunited. Forgiveness happens inside the wounded person. Reunion or reconciliation happens in a relationship between two people. We can forgive a person who never says he is sorry. We cannot truly be reunited unless he or she is honestly sorry. We can forgive even if we do not trust the person who wronged us once not to wrong us again. Reunion, reconciliation can happen only if we can trust the person who wronged us to not wrong us again. And finally, forgiving has no strings attached. Reunion has several strings attached. Here's an example. Maybe you have a, an adult child or your parent. Every time you talk to them, they just find ways to tear you down. Continually, they're, they're laying out the things that you, you know, if, if it's your child, laying out the things you didn't do as a, over and over again. Or, you know, you have an adult parent who continually criticizes all of your decisions every time you talk, every time you interact, just all the time. Um, in the kingdom of God, we're called to forgive. We're called to forgive that person. However, you can also say to your parent or child, I choose to forgive you for these things in the ways that you treat me, but if we're going to speak again, the next time we speak, if you begin doing that again, I'm going to give you, I'm just making this up, but you, I can give you one warning. And after that, I'm going to end the conversation. And I'm going to hang up the phone. I'm just letting you know ahead of time. If it happens, like, and we can try again, maybe another phone call. But it's okay to set boundaries. It's okay to say, I forgive you. I release you of that. But I'm going to let you know to be in relationship with me. Here are the boundaries. Right? And of course, we can get a conversation about what it could be excessive boundaries or those sort of things but we can set boundaries and forgive, right? We don't have to keep letting ourselves be abused over and over again. We can set boundaries. But here's another challenge to forgiveness is that we haven't experienced forgiveness at a heart level. We haven't experienced forgiveness at a heart level. And we see that in the story in Matthew 18, 28 to 29. It says, but when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 silver coins he grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. Now, we don't know why exactly he didn't forgive. We don't know. It doesn't tell us exactly why. You know, maybe that's just how he's always treated people who's owed him money, is that when they owe him money, if they're not able to pay it back right away like a mobster or something, it's like, hey, you don't pay back by this date, that's just done. And so all he's really done is like, he caught a break with the king he got forgiven. He, like, the guy actually like, believed him when he said, you know, begging for mercy. And then he just goes out and keeps doing what he's always done. Whatever the reason is, what we can see is that his heart wasn't changed when he was forgiven that much. Nothing changed inside. There was no shift at all. No shift at all. He was completely self-centered. As soon as he was forgiven, he went out and like lashed into this other servant, right? No heart change had happened at all. And oftentimes... For us, if we consider ourselves a Christian, and we would say, hey, I, I've been forgiven by Jesus, and yet we continually struggle 
to forgive. I don't mean like we're on the process of forgiving. I mean like we're like, I'm not forgiving this person. There's a difference between like, I'm trying to I'm trying to move in this direction of forgiveness. Like, that's making like, an emotion, right? That's moving forward. But we're like, I'm not going to do that. What happens is that what it often shows is that we've, we've had a, an intellectual experience of that we've done wrong against God, we've been forgiven, but it's never actually made our way into our hearts. It's not actually changed us. And what we actually need is to have a real experience where we become aware of, man, what's our posture towards God actually been? What's our posture towards other people actually been? How do we actually orient our lives and realize, man, there's, there's, a, lot of, there's a lot of wickedness and there's a lot of brokenness in there. There's a lot of ways that are like not good. And I need forgiveness. And in that moment, we're aware of all that stuff. We're also aware of how deeply God loves us and how in Jesus, he's made a way for all that to be taken away. If we haven't had an experience at a heart level of that, we're going to struggle to deeply forgive from our heart other people. We're always going to struggle with that because we haven't received forgiveness at a heart level. We haven't found that experience of God's grace and God's love for us. And C.S. Lewis, um, well, let me just back up. In this passage, it talks about how um, the king says, I'm going to throw you into prison like, because you're not willing to forgive, right? And, and Jesus says something like, in a, in a similar way, this is what God will do to you if you don't forgive. Here's the reality. We talk about God's kingdom. In God's kingdom, God's kingdom is a place where, we, where forgiveness is offered freely, not without cost. It costs the person who forgives, but the person who's forgiven, it doesn't, doesn't cost. And at the center of the kingdom of God is, is forgiveness, in grace, in mercy. And if we live our lives in such a way that says, I'm up for receiving that, I'm not up for extending that to others. What we're saying is that that's not the kind of kingdom I really want to be a part of. I don't really want to be a part of the kingdom of God because I really, I'm okay with the grace towards me, but not the grace towards others at a heart level. C.S. Lewis talks about this in this idea of, um, of God, of there, being, of there being judgment if we don't forgive others. He says this, there's only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, it is opened. What Lewis is saying, his opinion on this is, when we choose to not forgive others, we're choosing, we're saying, I don't want to be a part of that kingdom. Now, with our mouth, we might say, I want to be part of the kingdom of God. I want forgiveness. But then on the other side of our mouth, we're saying, but I don't actually, because I need to extend that to other people, that grace and that forgiveness. We're saying, I don't want to be a part of this kind of kingdom. Like, and Lewis is saying, it's, you know, at the end, it's like, your will be done. You know, God will say to, to others, say like, your will, you, you wanted this. You wanted to be part of a kingdom where you don't have to extend forgiveness to others. Okay. Okay, but that's not the kingdom of God. And so we've talked about the measure of forgiveness. We've talked about the meaning of forgiveness, talking about some of the challenges of forgiveness, some of the hurdles we overcome. Now, for the rest of our time, I want to talk about what's the method of how we forgive? What's the method of forgiveness? And so we're going to be a, a few minutes later this morning than we normally are, uh, an extra five minutes or so, but... Um, 
Here's, here's the method of forgiveness. And I'll put this in an email too if you, um, you want to read it later. But um, Jesus says, forgive from your heart. How do we forgive actually from our heart? Well, here's where we begin. We ask the question, who do I need to forgive? Who do I need to forgive? And oftentimes, the best way to kind of get to that point is just, you know, if you consider yourself a Christian, you can say, yeah, I, I want to hear, like, you ask the Holy Spirit to show us, to bring to mind, God, would you show me people that I need to forgive? If you don't yet consider yourself a Christian, it's all right. You can just begin kind of getting in a quiet place and saying, and it's like going, who do I need to forgive? And being honest. And then asking the question, what do I need to forgive? What do I need to forgive? And get specific. Like, specifically, list the things, like, that this person has done to you. You know, and try your best, like, at this point, like, not to be like, oh, yeah, they did, you know, but just to write down, like, this is what has happened. And this is the effect it's had on me. How's it affected your relationships? How's it affected your emotional well-being? How's it affect the way you view God, how you view others? And writing those things down and labeling them and saying, like, this is sin. This was wrong. So often we make excuses for other people. Real forgiveness, it doesn't make excuses for other people. It honestly names and says, this was wrong. This was not okay. Like, and that's part of the forgiveness. Because if we minimize it, minimize what's done and trivialize it, we can't actually forgive because we haven't actually honestly owned up to the effect that it's had. And here's the next Part. And well, and let me just say this about that too. When we get specific, when we get specific, it actually validates our hurt and the pain that we've experienced and it lets us process and heal actually by saying that it's not just it's okay, but it actually lets some of that emotion that maybe we never processed, it allows us to actually process some of that and let it come out. So the next step is reflect on the grace and forgiveness you've received from God. And this is key. It's central to the parable. It says that the king had pity or compassion on the person he forgave. Jesus, over and over again in the Bible, it talks about that he had pity and compassion for the, the man who owed him so much. And for us to engage in that means that we have to remember <laughs> what we've been forgiven we actually have to have compassion on the person who defended us. That does not mean what they did was okay. It doesn't trivialize it. It doesn't say no big deal. But in this, in this parable, what we have to tap into is, God, you have forgiven me of so much. There's nothing that someone else could do to me that would be greater than what you need to forgive me for. And we're tapping into that compassion. We're tapping into the pity and compassion and empathy that God has had towards us. It's not saying it's no big deal. But it's remembering we've been forgiven of something so much more. And I love this quote again from Pastor Rich Nathan from Vineyard Columbus. He says, forgiveness is passing on a drop of water from the ocean of forgiveness the Lord has given you. Forgiveness is passing on a drop of water of the ocean of forgiveness that God has given you. And then finally, we, we tell God that we're choosing to forgive them releasing their debt to God and surrendering them to God. For me, that's an important element is to say, God, you are a God of justice and you will make all things right someday, but I'm releasing my judgment because I trust you to judge correctly. And then we can take the, sp the step to sit with God in that space and allow him to speak and bring healing and comfort. We just sit in that space and say, God, I've forgiven that person would you bring healing? Would you do something in my heart? Would you, would you begin to heal those emotions in those places 
that feels so broken, and we just sit there and let God's forgiveness and healing flow over us.